Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to the other Talkback episode that was planned for observing Halloween this year. This one looks back to October 2014. It was called Anticipating the Bang, and in it, I essentially cover a film review of a famous French suspense thriller and call out Alfred Hitchcock as the different drummer. All that's to come, but first, from an introductory perspective, seems like a mistake to not look at the election coming up in the United States of America on November 3rd, since this podcast is going to be released in the build-up to that election. I have a couple questions that I want to ask related to the presidential election this year, and both of them are connected to the idea of encouraging everybody who is eligible to vote, who has not yet voted, to go out and do exactly that. I'll try to make a case in a couple of different directions. One of the questions is, what should we make of Americans who view voting or reminders to vote, encouraging citizens to vote, as some sort of a major problem, as if it's a betrayal of our country for um, registered voters to actually go out and do that? I was thinking about this the other day with a lot of the rhetoric coming from the conservative movement and Trump supporters in particular. While I was kind of watching sports this weekend and noticing that even in like uh, college football shows, uh, NFL previews, things of that nature, it's not unusual to see the NFL or ESPN uh, with a scrolling, you know, kind of scoreline also using that same real estate to remind people and encourage people to vote. That early voting is a reality in most states and that people can and should participate in that if they've got any concerns. Whether concerns related to the coronavirus or concerns related to how much time you might need to take off work to vote before you go in or during lunch or afterward, just encouraging people to vote and do it early and get it out of the way. What kind of an American are you? What kind of a patriot are you? If you view a get-out-the-vote campaign as somehow sinister, if you view your fellow citizens exercising their right to vote in this democratic republic that we live in in the United States of America as somehow borderline criminal? And the answer to that question is, you're no patriot at all. But when I see people who are either the victim of a foreign influence campaign or themselves foreign agents or so opposed to the free expression of speech in the United States of America that they would like to shut down people exercising those rights, including the right to vote, what makes me want to vote all the more. It makes me want for other citizens who have not yet voted to vote all the more. To raise your voice in this process and to be heard, and to be heard in some ways specifically because there are some American citizens who, for confusing or nefarious reasons, would like to silence your right to speak up in the form of voting, and perhaps it's a prelude to silencing your rights in other ways. Voting this year seems to be, for some folks, the ultimate acts of rebellion and defiance. And I say, go ahead and rebel against conservatives who would tell you not to vote. Go ahead and defy even your own sense of apathy. If, for example, you feel like, well, I'm living in a state where there really isn't that many local um, you know, races of interest, I dispute that. My guess is that there's an important local race in every single state. But if you, for example, 
were planning to vote to reelect President Trump, but you lived in a red state, in a deep red state like Oklahoma. Does that mean that there's no sense going to the polls? Because if all you care about is the, the national presidential election and the electoral college and how those votes will get distributed, well, then what's the point? Half the people who are eligible to vote in the state of Oklahoma could not go to the polls at all, and Oklahoma is still going to cast its electoral uh, votes toward President Trump. That's true no matter what. This was also true in 1984 when President Reagan was running for re-election, and in my opinion, even as a fairly young college student at the time, also obviously a patient, a dementia patient, or somebody who was having serious cognitive problems. And my attitude was... Even if Oklahoma is not going to vote for somebody other than Reagan, uh, there's value to your vote, either in uh, casting your vote and being heard and putting one more tick next to the Ronald Reagan ledger, or my attitude was, from an electoral college perspective, Reagan has Oklahoma sewn up, maybe it would be wise to vote for Mondale, even if you weren't that wild about Mondale, just to make sure that a dementia patient candidate did not conceive of himself as having an unfettered mandate to do whatever he would. That tightening up that popular vote would be really important. Well, since then, we've reached a comic extreme of tightening up the popular vote to such an extent that the last two Republican presidents have been part of elections where they didn't win the popular vote at all. Donald Trump, in fact, missed the popular vote by more than 3 million, maybe even more than 4 million. And this year, it is really important that he missed the popular vote by even more. That we're going to have real trouble, based on everything we've heard the president, his campaign, his supporters say, if, at least from the popular vote perspective, the results here aren't arguably a landslide. Now, I would say that losing by three or four million votes is already arguably a landslide. But I think it's really important that this gap increase. Because right now, we have to ask ourselves, what happens historically if this presidential election turns into such a mess that the U.S. Supreme Court or other forces decide that the House of Representatives is just going to have to sort this out? I'll explain the answer to that question in a moment, but the short answer is, this is not what we need or want to occur. It should be very simple for voters in every state to go to the polls, whether early or by absentee ballot or other mail-in format, or on election day, cast a vote, have those votes counted, and have the results, whether the day of the election or week later or two weeks later, be tallied up and be determined to be decisive. Because here's the problem with the House of Representatives getting involved in the decision of who's to become president in an early 19th century kind of a situation. Because I guess my fear is that probably your average American is looking at the House and saying, well, there's, there's more than 230 Democrats in the House, there's less than 200 Republicans in the House, so if the House of Representatives were to decide it, then that would be that, right? And everything would be fine. No, I believe that the current president and his campaign managers are intentionally sowing seeds of doubt, uh, casting overtures, interfering with the traditional delivery of the mail in such a way that doubts can be raised about the results of the election as tallied, and that the thing can, entire, can be forced entirely either into a Supreme Court decision to quote-unquote pick a winner, which is not an accurate but not an inaccurate way of describing what happened in the year 2000, or ultimately throwing it to the House of Representatives. What happens in the House of Representatives is that a state-by-state -state decision is made, meaning that you don't have 
you know, 335 individual choices being made, you have 50 states. And therefore, it's important to take a look from the perspective of what is the representation across those 50 states? Right now, if you said, well, how many, how many representatives in Congress are Democrat versus Republican within the House of Representatives, you'd find that there are somewhere between, call it 20 to 23 states that are represented by a clear Democratic majority and 26 that are represented by a clear Republican majority, and one of them is tied. In Michigan, it's an equal distribution of seven Republicans and seven Democrats. But elsewhere, I'd say the numbers are, to be more conservative, instead of the factually mathematically accurate 23 Democrat, 26 Republican, it might actually be more like 20 Democrat, 26 Republican, and four that are too close to call. Because those four that are too close to call all have only maybe one difference, or in the case of Michigan, zero differences, between the number of representatives who are Democrat versus Republican. Now, to me, this reveals one thing above all others that we should not gloss over. And that's the data like this simply proves that gerrymandering works. That you would think that with the kind of majorities that we're seeing across the country, not just in states like California and New Jersey, that you'd be seeing more situations where there would be a distribution more of a closer representation of a truly mixed electorate. But the more important short answer here is to say that it's very important that this does not go to some turn-of-the-19th-century hijinks in the House of Representatives, that the popular vote should be persuasive enough that anybody with an ounce of integrity, and there's at least a few Supreme Court justices to whom that seems to apply, and others where it's very questionable. But anybody with an ounce of integrity would recognize that the people have spoken through the popular vote, even if there are questions about one vote here or another vote there in a certain precinct in Nebraska or in Louisiana, has happened four years ago. Remember, there were something like five cases of people voting illegally or voting twice in the 2016 cycle. And to my knowledge, all of them were votes cast for Donald Trump. It's not like hijinks and tomfoolery don't exist, in other words. It would obviously be best if we didn't have to worry about it. And the best way to not worry about it is an absolutely decisive vote count. Massive legal participation across multiple states with a clear winner one way or the other from the popular vote. So this thing isn't being decided by whether or not the mail was tampered with by its own postmaster general, or whether there were other issues related to the delivery, receipt, and counting of absentee, of absentee ballots. I may have mentioned this before, either in the written word or the spoken word in past introductions to Talkback episodes, but there is nothing that, I can, that I'll be watching this Halloween season. No past thriller of a made-for-TV movie, no past horror film, made in any country, that will frighten me as much as the potential nonsense that could come out of this year's presidential election on November 3rd. The best way to cure that is to make the will of the people unmistakable. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about anticipating the bang.
I've spoken about Halloween before on Inappropriate Conversations, and in fact, when I put together the first set of maybe 120 planned uh, episodes for the show, holidays did a lot of the driving. Uh, You're laying out something that's going to be more than a year in advance, maybe even two years in advance, and looking at when to talk about certain topics. And the calendar provides cues, of course, and Halloween is certainly one of them. I feel like I've probably done as much with Halloween as I have with Christmas, as a matter of fact, and that's something I'll probably rectify this year. I intend to spend November, rather than focusing on Thanksgiving as I did a year ago, but actually beginning to look more seriously, perhaps, at the Advent season from both a religious and cultural perspective, and I may even get to it from a political perspective in December, depending on whether I get fatigued by the topic or not. But for now, Halloween. In Inappropriate Conversations 34, Edgar Allan Poe was the different drummer, and the topic was the music of dead musicians, uh, literally, how do I celebrate Halloween? And then, a year later, in the month of August, my different drummer was Gerald Friedman, and the main reason I talked about him as a, as a director, probably an unknown film director, TV director, was a movie of his called A Cold Night's Death, and again, looking at that concept of thriller, and whether horror is the only way, or even the best way, to deliver a scary movie. There's a through line between that and the Halloween a year and a couple months later, where I named Jacob Rellinger, uh, the musician, as a different drummer. But the topic that time was these movies and this line between the thriller and the horror film. I kind of called it The Thrill is Gone because I feel that what happened probably around the, the 80s, right, the turn between the 70s and the 80s, starting with the movie Halloween, perhaps, although it might have been a little sooner than that, was a shift away from suspense, thrillers, and over to horror. One of the other things that happened in that same time frame, getting from the late 60s to the late 70s, was the death of our different drummer, Alfred Hitchcock. But I'll get to him in a minute. I want to do a few things in a really subtle way to create some anticipation in this show. One of them is that I don't know that I can talk about the topic in the section of the topic without dealing with Alfred Hitchcock. He's the elephant in the room. No size or weight pun intended. And I also don't want to deal with the different drummer up front. I don't want to set that groundwork and then continue to riff riff off of it. I'll get to Hitchcock when I get to him. The other thing is I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about a movie that I probably first mentioned in Inappropriate Conversations number 50. That was talking about film as a great art form, or perhaps the greatest modern, current, recent art form. And there's no way I covered that topic well without mentioning the 1955 suspense film Les Diaboliques. I'll refer to it from this point forward as Diabolique. That's become the international sort of name for the film. It's interesting, though, because if you go by the name Diabolique, it sounds like its rough English equivalent would be diabolical. And this is not inconsistent with some of the things the director has said. The very end of the film, uh, when it showed theatrically the first time, had a uh, comment that was translated from French to English as, don't be diabolical yourself, and reveal the ending of the movie. We'll talk about why in a little bit. But it actually might have been originally intended to be translated as the devils, the the diaboliques. And I am going to spoil completely and fully and intentionally this movie Diabolique. If you haven't seen the 1955 original, you should. If you have an opportunity to see the remake, I would recommend that you avoid it, and I'm going to give away the ending nevertheless. So, I don't know when I'm going to do it. I really, sitting here right now talking into a microphone, have no idea when I'm going to cross the line. It could be very, very soon in dealing with the plot summary. 
But I think maybe the first thing I should do is kind of directly deal with that plot summary, because I want to talk about it from the perspective of anticipating the bang. And as I get into it, actually, it occurs to me that this notion of, of suspense, of thrillers, and even of horror, really being about not the payoff, not the stabbing, not the discovery of the old man's body buried underneath the floorboard, given away by the beating of the telltale heart and the mind of the protagonist slash antagonist in the Edgar Allan Poe short story. It's not that. It's the waiting for it, the leading up to it, the near misses along the way, the mystery and anticipation that that creates. And it occurs to me that if I wanted to pursue it, I might be able to make a comparison between softcore pornography and hardcore pornography, because there's a different bang in those two genre. The dirty joke I could probably make about what it means to anticipate the bang or the climax of, of the latter is, is obvious, and the former, probably lacking that pure payoff from the uh, using the industry terminology, perhaps has a different level or maybe even no suspense at all. I'm not sure how you'd kind of how do you kind of explore that? So I'm not going to. But the idea is this notion of anticipating the bang. And it would be wrong for me to say that, that anyone's done it better than Alfred Hitchcock. I think from a career perspective, there probably isn't anybody who's done it more successfully than Hitchcock. But if there's one film I would hold up as the, as the, the best example of it, it's not Hitchcock at all. It's a film directed in France by Henri Georges Clouseau called Diabolique. Here's the review written at allmovie.com, part of the All Media Guide, by Jason Ankeny. The greatest film that Alfred Hitchcock never made. So I told you, Hitchcock would keep coming up. Clouseau's Diabolique is set in a provincial boarding school run by headmaster Michael Michel de la Salle. A ruthless Lothario, he becomes the target of a murder plot concocted by his long-suffering invalid wife, Christina, and his latest mistress, an icy teacher played by Simone Signoret. So the two women are Christina, the uh, director's wife, playing a character with a heart condition. She actually herself had a heart condition. And Simone Signoret would have been one of the more uh, the better-known international actresses of the time, both for her skill and ability as an actress and for her appearance. She was a, a natural-born femme fatale. Those are my comments. Back to the review. A dark, dank thriller with a much-imitated shock ending. Diabolique is a masterpiece of Grand Guignol suspense. The simple murder plot goes haywire, and Michel's corpse disappears, prompting strange rumors of his reappearance, which grow more and more substantial as the film careens wildly toward its breathless conclusion. Later remade as a greatly inferior 1996 Hollywood feature with Sharon Stone and Isabella Johnny. So, Diabolique, 1955. Lots of things going against it from an American perspective. Uh, first off, its release year might have actually been 54 instead of 55 because it was originally released in France and then later distributed internationally. So you've got a foreign film here. And you are probably much better served with the subtitles in the foreign film. This is a movie that has a lot of, of ambient sound. So there's many places where there isn't just a ton of dialogue where what you're dealing with is is silence and and the, the subtle sounds that invade the silence. But the other problem is black and white, a um, couple hours long, um, hard, hard to track down. At one point may have slipped into public domain, meaning that there's probably various editions with various cuts, certainly various video quality available. And to see a good solid print reproduced appropriately, perhaps one by Criterion comes to mind. It still holds up today in so very many ways. 
The thing about Diabolique that I admire the most is that I view Diabolique as being two movies in one. And I guess the way I'd make this comparison is to say that the movie Sixth Sense is a movie that uh, was highly regarded, very entertaining. I'll call it a good movie. I'll shy away from calling it a great movie, but uh, that's a different topic for a different day, perhaps. But even before the viewing public got tired of M. Night Shyamalan's tactics and techniques, the fact that he turned, in the minds of many people, into a one-trick pony, when that trick was still fresh and new, he had still made one good movie with a twist ending. And if you know the twist, then the movie is a little different than if you went in not seeing it. There's only one chance to see the movie as, as Shyamalan originally intended it. And this is, I think, what Clouseau meant by putting a title card at the end of his film saying, don't be diabolical, don't give away the ending of the movie. But I think Clouseau undersold himself. And as a director, we can really see this throughout his career. This is somebody with a tremendous talent who suffered, perhaps in some parts of his life, with uh, maybe an inferiority complex. He's got a lot of unfinished projects, uh, movies that didn't get finished, screenplays that, that he wrote but never, never decided to execute. And you know, in the, in the middle of the 1960s, he was even one to downplay the quality of his true, really inarguably classic films. For him to downplay Diabolique or, or downplay The Wages of Fear kind of flies in the face of reason when you consider the fact that most of these films of his, most of his classic films had been remade, and perhaps maybe even attempted in remakes more than once. William Friedkin, in uh, the mid-70s, did a remake of The Wages of Fear called Sorcerer, dealing with the, the tantalizing quality of that topic of having uh, four ne'er-do-wells driving trucks full of nitroglycerin through a jungle and, and the dodgy roads that are available to them there. The uh, Raven, one of the earliest films in this uh, series, which we call Mature Clouseau, he put out, uh, was later remade by Hollywood as, I think, the 13th letter or 13 letters, a movie I haven't seen. And uh, as I mentioned right up front, Diabolique was remade in the mid-90s as a really bad, kind of a shadow-of-itself Hollywood film. A disappointment, in other words. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. I guess to explain my perspective, that Diabolique is really two great movies, or at least two very good movies, and not just one great film. Let me dip into the review, one of the reviews that I wrote about The Sixth Sense when it first came out, to kind of guide us through the idea that in the case of the, the movie The Sixth Sense, it's just one film, and it's a film that can be spoiled. And despite the fact that I intend to spoil Diabolique here, I don't know that that's quite the crime against film criticism that it might come off to be. Here's the second review that I wrote uh, regarding Sixth Sense. I wrote two, one spoiler-free and one full of spoilers. Uh, with The Sixth Sense, director M. Night Shyamalan has made a surprisingly neo-surreal film that focuses on an introductory question, have you seen the movie? If the answer is yes, then consider this review part two of two. There's another review that would come if the answer is no. Uh, you might want to skip this commentary and watch the film instead. Because of the plot elements in The Sixth Sense, it was necessary to cover certain points in an after-review. A warmly embraced cliché of screenwriting is that revealing the ending of a movie with a twisting and turning plot will ruin the film. Sadly, this cliché is true more often than not. It is telling for some films that the success hinges entirely on the element of surprise. 
In his review of Easy Rider for The New Republic, Stanley Kaufman wrote, As for that ending, which I had better not reveal, it is a coup de theater that tries to consummate the sanctification of the two youths. But after the shock is over, it is seen only as a coup de theater, which is why I won't describe it. But when a critic can't describe an action for fear of spoiling it for a prospective viewer, that's a pretty fair index of the action's superficiality. Quoting Kaufman. In essence, by making a movie that would be ruined if we knew the ending, the writer is implicitly acknowledging the story's shortcoming. Take Diabolique as a positive example. For the international release in 1955, Henri Georges Clouseau added the warning, Do not be diabolical yourself and reveal the ending. Theaters were instructed not to allow anyone back into the auditorium during the final ten minutes. Was Clouseau trying to prevent the good movie he made from being ruined? Hopefully not. In truth, Clouseau was preserving the fact that he had made two good movies in one. Diabolique is a different film when you know the story. One movie is a supernatural thriller with a spine-tingling ending. The other is a Hitchcockian crime drama that may have given birth to the Columbo character on American television two decades later. For each viewing of Diabolique, Clouseau has made an excellent film. The trouble is, if you know what happens before your initial screening, then you'll never be able to recapture the first plot with its stunning climax. Is The Sixth Sense two great movies according to the standards set by Diabolique? No. Even the first viewing suffers from its own surprises. I'll stop there, because I do not intend to do a deep dive into The Sixth Sense. What I intend to do instead is to do a dive into Diabolique and to talk about the power of the film coming from anticipating the bang, from the suspense. Because on the one hand, Diabolique could be viewed as a horror movie. I mentioned it's kind of two films in one, so seeing it what we might call the first way, it does end with a supernatural moment and with you know a horrifying climax. And uh, from, from, the, from that perspective, you could argue that there's elements of horror, but I would say no. I would say it's more like thrillers. And I talked about this a couple of years ago in that other Halloween episode. For me, I'm not a fan of the slasher film. I won't be watching Friday the 13th part anything this October as we get closer to Halloween. I've tentatively made, made my mind up to queue up Mars Attacks for reasons I talked about in the previous Inappropriate Conversations Different Drummer segment. But I'm, I'm not the fan of the, uh, of the slasher movie. So I've seen clips here recently of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which do little more than just sort of remind myself that I don't really have time for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm not one to decide that an entire genre is bad, and therefore everything in the genre is bad. But I'm honest enough as a critic to say, if there's something I don't like, then I don't need to watch it. Therefore, it's okay for me to not have an opinion about it. So I don't have an opinion on which Nightmare on Elm Street is the best or the worst. I would assume the first is the best, but you know what I mean. Because I'm not going to watch that series. It's the slasher film with the payoff being the gore that doesn't really interest me. I'm more interested in the thriller, where the payoff being the bang. And whether that bang is the, the moment in the Edgar Allan Poe short story where the person who's murdered the old man comes clean about it, or whether the bang is the moment in the cellar in Psycho where we finally sort out once and for all who Mother is and what's going on with her. It's that moment of anticipating the bang. Because when I watched the movie Psycho, I don't watch the movie from the perspective of that shower scene being the most important part. For me, the interesting thing about the shower scene is both how long Hitchcock took to get there and how relatively short 
the seminal moment in the film comes in the plot. The bang for Hitchcock in the movie Psycho was killing off his lead actress, and perhaps one of the main reasons anybody went to see the movie just by looking at the poster, less than a third of the way into the film. If you were somebody who was a huge fan of Scarlett Johansson, for example, and there was going to be a shower scene where she gets murdered, and you kind of knew that from the buzz, you may be going to the movie looking to see Scarlett Johansson, looking to see her acting performance, and looking to see her in the shower. And it would be a big surprise if there was more than an hour of movie left after the reason you went to see to the show suddenly unexpectedly disappeared from the plot, except as a corpse or as a victim uh, in a murder where there was a murder investigation or missing persons investigation going on. So it's that idea of anticipating the bang. So what happens in Diabolique? Well, first you've got this dysfunctional relationship. The review from allmovie.com ascribed all of it to basically the schoolmaster being a Lothario, but it's more complicated than that. It's not just that he's cheating on his wife. He's abusive and dismissive. He's, a, he's a, kind of a sexist pig. He dislikes children, shouldn't be running a school. In the process of running the school as he does, it's, it's really fairly shameful. Uh, you know, foods are not good. Kids are being served spoiled food or at least very subpar food. The teaching morale is horrific. He's just doing a terrible job running the school. And as we're proceeding through the first part of the plot, we realize that both the wife and the mistress, who are in this situation forced to work together, have reasons to want him dead. So you go through, say the movie's an hour and 47 minutes long, you go through probably the first half of it. The first act seems long to me, in the sense of establishing that this guy's a problem, the women have a reason to want him dead, uh, a little bit about the, the inner workings of the school itself, and then they take they go they go on a long trip. They drug him. They put him in a basket. They take him on a long trip. They drown him in a bathtub. They wait till he's totally they're sure he's dead. They put him back in the basket. Load the basket in a truck. Drive back to the school. Dump him in a swimming pool. Now dumping in a dumping a body in a swimming pool may not be the greatest idea. Except remember this is a rundown, poorly run school. So the swimming pool is worse than a pond in terms of being. Dark, murky water, covered in algae, that sort of thing. Um, his standard of groundskeeping from the perspective of the swimming pool is just as bad as what's being served in the cafeteria. And the theory is that because there's a body in the pool, at some point it's going to float up. One of the kids will find it, and it will appear to be purely a drowning. Now, in the modern era of CSI TV, this is a terrible idea. Back then, they could have gotten away with it, but now the the difference in the tap water from a bathtub being filling, filled in this guy's lungs versus the quality of water that was in the pool, it would be a dead giveaway. But there's reason to believe by the standards of police work in the mid-1950s that they were going to get away with it. This also wasn't like a major metropolitan uh, boarding school. This is you know, somewhat remote. It's a provincial town. So when a retired detective shows up to begin asking questions about, well, first off, wanting to talk to the schoolmaster and then not being, being confused about where he's at and not being able to understand uh, the process of identifying the missing body. And then there's other clues that begin to happen. And this is where we begin anticipating the bang because the body doesn't float to the surface. And a day or two goes by and, and one of the women, the wife of the two, the, the more frightened, the more mousy, I guess would be the way I would word her, not the icy, cool femme fatale that the mistress is, begins to lose her edge and begins to panic. And I think the mistress gets concerned that they're 
perfect crime is going to be revealed because the wife's going to lose her cool and freak out. So they come up with an excuse to drain the pool, just to sort of get to the bottom of things. And after draining the pool, they realize that, yeah, this isn't like the body is stuck to the bottom in a, in a filtration system or something. It's just, it's not there. And then the question becomes, who's fished the body out of the pool? Are they aware of what the women have done? Are they beginning to face a blackmail plot of sorts? And then they begin to get the idea that maybe there is somebody in town who's aware of this because people begin reporting seeing the dead man alive. But the women know that can't be true because they killed him. They drowned him, they drowned him stuck him in a basket, drove for two hours back and forth. They know he's dead. But the question is, who's pretending to be him? Open, who's gone into a hotel room in his name? Who's sent off to have his suits dry cleaned and, and retrieved? And some of the children report even seeing him. Uh, children report seeing him when they probably shouldn't be. Like the children are breaking curfew out in the hallway at night, running into the schoolmaster. And you know some of these kids have fanciful, fantastic imaginations, so you're not sure what's going on. But what you do know is that you're watching these elements from the perspective of the wife. Because she's the most nervous. She's the most, you know, really, becoming unhinged by this. And you begin to worry that with her heart condition, she may not survive the plot long enough to see through their murder scheme to its happy ending. Because make no mistake, the wife in this film is the protagonist. The, the mistress is a supporting, an enabler, perhaps a Faustian character, a devil whispering into her ear, encouraging her to do illegal things. But there really isn't a moment in this movie where we're led to mourn the death of the schoolmaster. He is the antagonist. And his body, being unable or unwilling to float to the top of the pool and be discovered, is one of his greatest sinister crimes. Uh, even if you perceive it to be an involuntary and coincidental, it's as if he is still a jerk after death. So, as a viewer, you're not led to sympathize. For In fact, one perhaps one of the flaws of Diabolique is that the guy has almost no redeeming qualities. And it would be a little better if there was some sort of hinge of guilt. When she speaks of being you know, conflicted over murdering her husband, it's not because of the man. It's because of the idea of murder and the idea of, of what a husband should be and therefore what she as a faithful wife should be. So all this communicated fairly well by Vera Cluzo, who, to be brutally honest, probably the least skilled actor of the group, of the ensemble, because you've got major talent, not just including um, Signore as the, uh, as the mistress, Nicole, but also the retired detective. So when you get close to the beginning of the final act of the film, a retired detective begins asking questions. He's got nothing but time. This not being officially, at least initially not officially a missing persons case, had kept it away from a formal police investigation, but... You know, this guy's got nothing better to do. He's just gonna he's just gonna poke around and ask a few questions. There's a, a mystery to solve, and he's willing to solve it. And a very great acting performance there. Again, I mentioned that there's no way I can directly tie the movie Diabolique to the creation of the TV series Columbo, at least none that I'm aware of. But if you see Diabolique and then you know compare it to Columbo, it, there's a lot of good tie-outs between the two. If only the character in Diabolique would make a few more references to his wife. Uh, we'd be we'd be in great shape. It's it's that close. So as the movie progresses, we begin to fork down these two paths. And if I talk about seeing a movie like this, is there anticipation depending on which way you view the film? 
Absolutely. That's why he made two great movies. If you see The Sixth Sense the second time after knowing the twist at the end, all you're doing is watching to see how the director laid out the clues, how he clouded, how he obfuscated, how he made his plot device work. But it literally, the second viewing is just exploring the technique, exploring the plot device. But in Diabolique, you've got two films. You've got one film where a wife crosses the line from a morality perspective, commits a murder, and her husband comes back from the dead to avenge the crime that she's committed, leading her to have a heart attack and die. That's one film. And and frankly, a fantastically Hitchcockian ending. More Hitchcockian than most of Hitchcock, as a matter of fact. On the other hand, what you've got is a film that feels a little bit like the last part of um, Dial M for Murder where just when it appears that the the bad guy is getting away with his crime, that he's fooled his wife with the collaboration and help of his mistress into believing she's murdered him, when in fact she actually hasn't. And the entire thing was a scheme to give her a heart attack and, and uh, or to get her to confess to a crime that she didn't commit, to, to knock her off one way or another so that they can sell the school, cash in the money, go live on an island together. That this very, in some ways, routine crime drama film, buried inside this otherwise psychological thriller, this this supernatural horror film, in one of them, the husband comes back from the dead. and the other one, he was never dead to begin with. In one of them, a police officer is investigating the murder and trying to get evidence to pin it on the wife so she can be put away for a crime she's committed. And the other one, he's actually investigating a scam and trying to gather the evidence that he needs as a detective to defend the wife, to protect her, to in some ways ensure that what ultimately happened didn't happen. And the irony is, of course, he was unable to defend her. She had a heart attack and died. Or did she? And in the other one, he was actually able to solve the crime. But at what expense? The reason I raise the or did she question is that one of the boys who would testify to the school teachers, that he had seen the schoolmaster after he had disappeared and that he'd seen him alive in the hallways uh, doing his job, but doing his job late at night, uh, they dis- they dismissed the kid. As, you know, he's a kid with a fanciful imagination. Well, at the very end of the movie, the kid shows up saying he's seen the missus, too, long after we know that she had a heart attack and died. Was their original theory right that the kid just has a fanciful imagination, can't necessarily be trusted? Or did the kid see the wife just as much as he had earlier seen the husband? This is what I mean by saying that Clouseau directed two great films in one. This is what Ankeny of All Movie Guide means when he says that this is the greatest Hitchcock film that Hitchcock never made. As a matter of fact, Clouseau had bought the rights to do an adaptation of the original story for, from Diabolique right out from underneath Hitchcock. Had he not gotten there first... Hitchcock was headed in that same direction. And although Hitchcock had numerous projects that he considered working on and ultimately shelved and didn't do, uh, the odds of Hitchcock getting to something as good as this that he planned to do much, much higher than Clouseau, who, as I mentioned, left a lot of things on the vine. So when you watch Diabolique the first time, from the wife's perspective, you're anticipating the bang of this body being found, of them perhaps getting away with it. And when the body doesn't surface in the pool, there's suspense. When they drain the pool and there's nobody there, there's suspense. When kids talk about seeing the schoolmaster in the school, there's suspense. When someone appears to be roaming the village and checking into to bed, and, bed and breakfast rooms under his name, there's suspense. 
all of this ultimately building up to noises in the middle of the night when the school otherwise should have been empty on a on a break of sorts, and the wife going into a bathroom, finding the corpse of her husband in a tub, wearing the same suit that he was wearing when they drowned him in a tub several miles away, rising from the tub, rising from death, with a zombie-like expression, with sort of blank white eyes, no pupils, no eye coloring, and coming toward her with his arms outstretched as if to strangle her in a moment of revenge, and in absolute terror and panic, clutches her heart, falls against the wall, slides down, not unlike Janet Lee in Psycho, but this is years before Psycho, slides down the wall and dies. There's that moment where you feel like, wow, this payoff, this is, this is, a, this is a Vincent Price-style horror film. We're getting the payoff of the supernatural hand of death coming back to exact revenge. And how ironic that the bad guy is actually getting revenge over, over the protagonist in this case. And could a movie from 1954, 55 actually turn so dark and end this way? Well, no, because it's at that moment he pops the fake eyeballs out of his, out of his head, complains about how long he had to stay in, in a suit drenched in water over the past few days slash weeks. The uh, mistress comes in and says, hey, is it finally done? And just as they're about to get away with their perfect murder, not the perfect murder we thought we were watching on first viewing, the detective comes in, reveals that he's got enough evidence to send them away for 10 to 15 years, if not longer. So when you watch it the second time, it isn't about a fed-up wife and mistress murdering a you know sexist and, frankly, sadistic schoolmaster. It's more about watching what is like, – it's like a Columbo movie. Again, going back to that reference, where a typical TV episode of Columbo will begin with you seeing the person who committed the crime committing the crime and a lot of detail on how they did it. And the point of, the, of that crime show is not who done it, but how are they going to catch him? And you can watch Diabolique the second time, seeing, knowing because you've seen it once, seeing what exactly the schoolmaster and the mistress were up to, how they accomplished the goal of tricking the wife into thinking she murdered him, and what clues they're putting out there to try to tip her over the edge into terror and heart failure, and what the detective is seeing and doing about it. Two great films in one. Each one of them, though, anticipating a different kind of bang. Each one of them asking a question, will the bad guy get away with it? But twisting the question on who the murderer really is. I, I recommend Diabolique heartily. Even if you've never seen the original. Even if you've been spoiled already because you saw the crap remake. Unlike so many films with a twist ending. In this case, if you know how it ends, you still have a great movie ahead of you. You still have a great experience awaiting you. And the difference is... The anticipation, the suspense, it's not the supernatural gore. In this case, there's almost no gore. But, you know, a man rising from the dead out of a bathtub threatening to strangle his, his wife. It's not that moment that really is the ultimate payoff. The ultimate payoff is actually all the steps along the way, which is why a well-crafted, dare I say, Hitchcockian thriller is timeless, where some other films become almost as almost a means to an end. You could flash forward to the to the twist ending or to the to the stabbing or to whatever the plot resolution is, because there isn't that much rewards laid out for you ahead of time. As we veer near the end of the different drummer here, I'm going to talk a little bit about examples where Hitchcock did exactly that. Where sometimes 
I don't watch a Hitchcock film to see the ending. Sometimes I'm watching a Hitchcock film for no other reason than to see the things he laid in front of us all along the way. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! design for me for having conversations on this topic of of great thrillers including great tv thrillers was to get to hitchcock pretty early the first halloween conversation simply had to be edgar Allan poe but the next conversation about scary movies or thrillers versus horrors or halloween itself was going to need to be about hitchcock and that didn't happen all the way till now there's a couple reasons for it um my enthusiasm for made-for-TV movies in the 1970s has led me down the path of hitting a couple of topics beforehand, and it seems ironic to name Gerald Friedman, a TV director, as a different drummer prior to Alfred Hitchcock, because, truthfully, I probably had Hitchcock in mind if I was going to put directors that I've named just into that genre of the different drummer based on film direction alone. The first film direction choice I made was not a director at all. It was Dee Dee Allen, the uh, film editor, and I moved her up into that first few episodes because of her untimely death. I say untimely. She lived a, a very full life, but I wasn't expecting to read an obituary notice, and it moved her very close to the top of the pile. But when I got to directors, I always knew that Louis Bunuel was going to come first. And I wouldn't have been surprised if the Coen brothers also came before Hitchcock, but to have gotten to so many other movie directors before Alfred Hitchcock, not what I would have predicted at all. That kind of caught me off guard a little bit because I have that kind of esteem, but my esteem for Hitchcock is a little bit different. I don't necessarily take him as seriously as I do some of these international directors, Louis Benoit being the best example, but I also probably take some of the other some of the other genre fiction directors more seriously. Terry Gilliam is a good example for that, I suppose, because I view Hitchcock primarily as entertainment. Now, I know it's finely crafted entertainment, and there are very few directors, Bunuel being the other one, that I would mention as making films at the highest level, being at the top of the craft all the way back into the silent era. For me, Hitchcock's uh, true classics probably begin with The Lodger. So you're going from somewhere around 1927 to 1976, a span that covers black and white films, silent films, uh, color films, Hollywood blockbusters, independence, movies made against the will of the of the movie studios, movies made in constant conflict with the movie studios, uh, movies made just to make studios happy, propaganda films, a couple of them made in the mid you know the middle of the war. I say 1943, 1944, shot and made in French to be um, shown in France as anti-Nazi propaganda films. That's a pretty broad palette. And although I don't know that Hitchcock's one or two efforts at pure movie comedy were successful, I would say that he has found a way to be not just a one-trick pony. There are movies from Hitchcock that are really pure drama or melodrama. There are movies that are 
comedy or at least have comic touches and comic moments. Adventure films, not just thrillers. And really, maybe only one pure horror film in the entire set being Psycho. And even that, from a horror film perspective, only featuring you know a couple of stabbing deaths. So not really a lot of gore in his version of horror. So you've got a director with a wide palette, but a director who made me much like Steven Spielberg, when you think about going to the movie theater, you may go with a deferential nod toward the artistry and the uh, skilled craftsmanship of the people making the movie, but you're really going to be entertained. Uh, you pop popcorn for a Hitchcock movie. I don't know that if you don't know you do that for Ingmar Bergman. So that primarily being the difference. So how, in one relatively short, different drummer segment, can a person even speak of the breadth and importance of Hitchcock? I don't think you can. I recently, to prepare for this, listened to seven plus hours of podcasts devoted strictly to shining a spotlight on the work and career of Alfred Hitchcock. The podcast I chose to be my view into the past was Horror Etc. It's a Canadian podcast that tends to deal specifically with horror films. It has a focus there. So much so that there were a lot of Hitchcock movies that they had never seen. Because where I am perhaps a, th- a thriller enthusiast, but only that among a broad palette of things I enjoy, these guys are horror enthusiasts. That's what they do. And the palette of other things is somewhat limited. Horror and popular culture would probably be the mainstay. So they might view Diabolique as an acquired taste. It's a foreign film. It's a black and white 50s film. There would be hurdles for them to overcome. So while I really enjoy Hitchcock's The Lodger, think the world of it, they had lots of things to say that appreciated the same things about the movie The Lodger that I do. But from the perspective of being, we don't really like silent films, but this wasn't bad for these reasons. Whereas my perspective being, I really like silent films, and The Lodger is one of the reasons in and of itself. So a slight, slight difference there. So rather than restate any of that, because those three podcasts, going back you know, a couple years, give or take, uh, certainly all recorded probably since the last time I talked about thrillers, using the uh, focus on the thrill is gone from that one episode, Inappropriate Conversations number 103. So somewhere between the end of October 2012 and now, there have been three Horror Etc. episodes looking at more than 15 films of and about Hitchcock. Good stuff. That's kind of where I educated myself or re-educated myself. Because I've read about Hitchcock. I've read what Leonard J. Leff has had to write. I think most of it, at least most of it, that's been published for wide distribution. I've read Truffaut's point of view about Hitchcock, a bit from Spotto and others. So it's not like I was not informed. If I were to sit down and write a list of all the movies that I've seen by any one director, Hitchcock might have the biggest plurality Although Louis Benoit would certainly have the edge from the perspective of, of a pure, of, have I seen a majority of that person's work? It is that majority in the 30s. So if you set a threshold that said, you need to have seen 25 or more movies by this particular director, and then the second one be, the number you've seen as a percentage of their total output is very high. Because Hitchcock's made a lot of movies. And because he's a film director born in England, and making his films predominantly in England and America those movies are widely available. Whereas most of the Boonwell films I haven't seen, I haven't seen, not because I don't want to, but because they're just not available. Shot in Mexico, and only distributed there, for example. But as I mentioned on the intro to this different drummer segment, sometimes with Hitchcock, it's definitely about the suspense, the build-up, the uh, the tension that he can create. 
Uh, if you know, for example, that Janet Lee's going to get knifed completely out of the movie Psycho at some point, even if you know she's going to get knifed out of the movie Psycho early, it's an evil trick you can actually play on somebody who's familiar vaguely with Psycho but hasn't seen it. Tell them that she gets she gets eliminated right at the beginning of the movie. It's both factually true from a first act versus second, third act perspective, but you could almost, on one level... Psycho leads you down this path of wondering when she's actually going to get stabbed to being shocked that she got stabbed so soon and there's so much movie left on the other side. It kind of works on both levels. The Birds took a lot of criticism from the horror etc. guys. I think in part because there's too much build up there. From their perspective, it's a two plus hour movie, but maybe more than an hour of it doesn't have anything to do with birds attacking. And they were, again, as, as horror aficionados, probably expecting the first bird attack in the first 15 minutes. It's like in that first 15 minutes of a horror film, you need to establish the danger. Is it, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis seeing Mike Myers through a, through a bedroom window and having a sense of dread about that? And then later, later of course, there'll be some murders. Uh, speaking of the movie Halloween, in the movie The Birds, Hitchcock doesn't really do that. In a movie about birds attacking people, he subverted that completely and subverted it for even longer than he did earlier in Psycho. Where, again, you go to see a movie Psycho, you know there's going to be some brutal murders. You may have read in Variety magazine or elsewhere that Hitchcock had trouble with the movie studio and trouble with the censors because of the degree of violence and how grisly the murder scene was. And the movie just meanders on for a long time of just a routine sort of crime drama feel. And then all of a sudden, boom. Well, you've been anticipating it and then you finally get the bang. So Hitchcock was very good at that. But in other cases, movies like Rebecca, for example, there really isn't a lot of anticipation going on early in that film. He's just, he's establishing things he's going to leverage later, but it's not suspenseful, per se. And the example that I would use for it is North by Northwest. Yes, there's some genuine, there's some intrigue, there's some crime drama. It's a spy movie more than a thriller, perhaps. It's certainly not a horror film in any way. But as you're working through all the twisting plot points, mistaken identity, uh, attempted murder, the main character then being accused of attempted murder, all this sort of stuff as it unfolds, to me, when I watch North by Northwest, it's not about the crop dusking scene where you know a character observes that that guy's dusting crops where there ain't no crops, and later we find out why. It's not about the climax on top of the of Mount Rushmore in a non-existent piece of topography. It's none of that. To me, it's that setup early on. It's everything from the very first frame, when Hitchcock misses the bus, all the way to maybe the point where, well, actually, it's to this point. If I had to name a favorite scene in all of Hitchcock's filmmaking, it's the auction scene, where finally for the first time, Thornhill meets Van Damme face to face. Has anyone ever told you that you overplay your various roles rather severely, Mr. Kemper? First, you're the outraged Madison Avenue man who claims he's been mistaken for someone else. Then you play the fugitive from justice, supposedly trying to clear his name of a crime he knows he didn't commit. Now you play the peevish lover, stung by jealousy and betrayal. Seems to me you fellows could stand a little less training from the FBI and a little more from the actor's studio. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. It's not that there hasn't been some setup, 
almost everything that's happened previously in the movie is leading to this point. Because Thornhill has seen the James Mason character before, but he's now seeing him for the first time as who he really is. And all of our questions as an audience are reaching their peak of confusion of what's really going on here. And all those questions are about to get answered when the Thornhill character gets himself arrested, thanks the police for finally responding to his, quote, call, and the CIA or whatever government agency it is, finally gives Thornhill the lowdown. But gives him some of the lowdown over the engine noises of airplanes, leaving us as an audience still somewhat in the dark. That setup, watching those moments, is not necessarily anticipating a suspenseful payoff to come. It's literally watching Hitchcock, at the height of his powers, fully explore both the screenwriting and the the scenery-chewing aspects, trusting that... If you put into your film actors like Cary Grant, James Mason, even Marie Saint, you don't necessarily have to be the best director at directing actors to tremendous performances. Because Hitchcock, like Bunuel, who I criticized in the earlier Different Drummer segment in the very first year of the show, these are not the best directors at directing actors. These are not people that you would put in an off-Broadway production of a serious drama and expect them to deliver Eugene O'Neill on the stage. It's not their strength. But to some degree, it didn't have to be their strength because of the work that Hitchcock put into scenario, Bernard Herrmann put into score, and then letting letting the actors just do their thing. In many ways, letting the actors have their fun. I watch Hitchcock to have fun. I watch thrillers to have fun. And to be honest, to be perfectly frank, it's why I don't watch that many horror movies. I guess what I'd say is that I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Halloween. It's really more of a love-meh relationship. I enjoy seeing people um, and having a good time dressing up in costumes. I don't at all mind the annual ritual of handing candy to kids. I like the fact that in the cities that I've lived in most recently, this happens not on whatever night of the week Halloween falls in after dark, For both safety reasons, and I think also to put a scope around the event itself, the Halloween trick-or-treating activity happens primarily in the middle of a Sunday afternoon, typically the Sunday before Halloween. And, full disclosure, the day I'm making this recording. Early in the morning, so I don't have to make it later when the dog will go crazy because there'll be kids wandering around the neighborhood doing the trick-or-treat thing. I like the trick-or-treat thing. I like the fact that it's in broad daylight so I can see the costumes. And as a Christian, I've written about this before. I like being able to to satisfy families with with a pleasant, loving response by giving not just candy, but good candy, by enjoying the cultural moment that it is. So I want to end this show by pointing out two different articles. They show my defense of Halloween against its attackers, but also an opinion that I would concur with about my sort of meh reaction to it. It's not... It's not a holiday I get into. I'm very unlikely to dress up. I'm certainly unlikely to get excited about it. I'm an observer, I guess would be the way I'd word it. 
on the Inappropriate Conversations website, uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org, one of the earlier articles, in fact, on the category for articles, I've got everything that I've written that's more of a blog post than a podcast post, and one of them from Halloween Day, October 13th in the year 2010, I put up an article called Doing the Devil's Bidding, and it really kind of challenges Christians on the notion that Christians should somehow be hostile or even necessarily opposed to the celebration of Halloween as a secular holiday, doing the devil's bidding. And then from just this year, in fact, uh, I saw it just yesterday, a post from October 24th, 2014, this one not by me, by Shane Thomas instead. Shane Thomas is a name that may be familiar with any, to anybody who listens to the greatest events in sporting history, for example. His post, called Halloween, Racism's Biggest Party, calls some concerns to Halloween as a holiday, the celebration, the way it can be uh, treated between the haves and the haves-nots, for example. That post can be found on a site called MediaDiversified.org. If you go to MediaDiversified.org right now, and of course you can't do it today because I haven't posted this yet, but it's going to be one of the higher blogs. It's under the racism tag, and it deals with sort of the other side of Halloween and the fact that a lot of the cosplay, for want of a better word, comes with what could be witting or even subliminal racist undertones, that there is something about the way we handle Halloween uh, people dressing up as terrorists, but the terrorists almost always being people with uh, brown skin color <clears throat> is one example. Or even the you know the somewhat skeevy notion of a teenage girl or or a woman in her twenties. Most of the costumes available for them are the sexy costume. There's no nurse, policeman, or firefighter for female people dressing up for Halloween. It's always the sexy nurse, the sexy cop, or the sexy firefighter. These are issues related to Halloween. And it's one of the reasons that my point of view about the holiday itself is, you know, it's kind of it's kind of meh. You know, I don't like watching movies that are so formulaic that you can predict what's going to happen at the 15, 30, 45, and one hour marks as you work your way through it. Whether it's, again, a sexploitation film where we're being shown various stages and types of nudity along the way for our hero to finally lose his virginity, or whether it's a slasher film where couples engaging in premarital sex are being set up for the, uh, the ultimate sort of Greek tragedy payoff for the sin of their lust by some supernatural creature. Now, I, I like the kind of movies where the supernatural may or may not be involved. We may or may not have an explanation for what happened with the birds in Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. Uh, we get a psychological explanation at the end of Psycho, but that's not really the reason we watch the film. It might be the best part of Anthony Perkins' performance in the movie, but it's not really the reason that we watch the film. No, for me, my favorite Halloween film is two-in-one. It's a movie where knowing the ending changes the movie you're watching, but it changes one good movie into another good movie. There's really nothing diabolical about that. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The website has show notes enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. You can comment into those show notes as well. I can be found on Twitter, at IC underscore Greg. There's a Facebook page for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. 
Inappropriate Conversations can be heard on Stitcher. Stitcher is a great way to listen to music on the go. It'll be interesting to see what the recent acquisition of Stitcher means for customers. Right now, the company is saying business as usual, which is good, because every now and then there's a podcast that I get that I can only listen to through Stitcher. I'll be very disappointed if anything changes that way. And finally, it's been a while since I've stuck anything on SoundCloud. I stopped at episode 35, putting in clips, sort of an audio teaser, as opposed to a written teaser, of the content of past episodes. I stopped when I did the one on the Electoral College. It only makes sense to let that linger as we get here toward the end of October and early November, but I do intend to pick up and continue to post clips of those oldest episodes working forward and giving people a way of glimpsing into the earlier material that's available on the Inappropriate Conversations website. I do expect at some point that process is going to get me all the way to current day. We'll see how it goes. Thanks for listening, and please forgive me for spoiling. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.